welcome to episode seven of the Talking Skiing Podcast. I'm Lenny Joseph, and in this episode, we catch up with Dan Vandermulen. He's the lead heli guide for Alaska Backcountry Guides. Dan has been working and playing in the Alaska mountains for over 20 years. And in this episode, we chat with Dan about snowmobile skiing from his back porch, his first winter in Alaska, getting into guiding, his thought process when analyzing weather and snow conditions, as well as his approach to guiding guests. I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dan Vandermulen on the Talking Skiing Podcast. Dan, how you doing? Very well. Greetings from Alaska. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, now I saw a picture that you sent me just a couple days ago, of a big scenic shot there on the snowmobile and with the skis. And uh, is that kind of what you've been doing here uh, so far this season is just getting out and exploring on the snowmobiles? Yeah, we've had the opportunity this season with great snow coverage to essentially explore up every valley and go up into some new areas and into some of our old little keepsakes. But we utilize the snowmobile quite a bit up here for that five to 15 mile access approach to go be able to climb what you want. And from there, we we're hiking straight up the slope or we'll put on the skins and ski up. But usually um, I'd say on the perfect day, the snowmobile saves us that hours of approach and also gets us up there to maybe like 3,000, 5,000 feet. And then we're just skiing the, the top of the mountain essentially. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of doing a a mix and you're using the snowmobile to get way in there. Then you're, you're busting out the the skins and sort of hiking the rest of the way pretty much. Yeah, primarily. And we do do a fair amount of straight up snowmobile drop-offs. The wife really enjoys it. Take her up the stuff that I would go through and then climb the mountain, the lower stuff, the 30, 35 degree stuff. I will go up there and ski that with the kids and the family and whatnot. It's access for everybody. The travel, the ex- it's amazing off of snowbills right now. Yeah. And you're based out of, uh, out of where? Valdez, South Central Alaska. Yeah. And, you know, as far as like from your house to getting into some skiing and getting on the snowmobile and, and heading out, you know, does it take very long to get rolling or is it uh, right there pretty much? Right now it is out the back door. I can get up to 6,000 feet pretty easy out my back door within an hour Yesterday, we put on a 50-mile ride from the porch, if you will. Oh, wow. <laughs> As things warm up later in the year, and the we're at sea level here, and it gets harder down here, then we're transporting up to Thompson Pass when we want to go ride, more or less. And that's that's 30 minutes out. Oh, okay. So, yeah, either uh, right from the house or a relatively short drive, and then you're into the snow and on your way, huh? Yeah. I said 30, and it is only 30 miles, but it is it's an hour out. I mean, it's, right now it's 30 miles of black ice. Yeah. So you're not going 60 on that day. A little slower overall towing a, towing a sled. But it is an absolute blessing to be able to ride out of the backyard. And for any skier out there, there's, there's lines that you can see from your house that might be f- far less than ideal, but you see the line and you can see it from your house. You can sip on your coffee and look at it and you're like, I got to ski that someday. I, I've got a couple of those lines that I've put a week of effort into trying to master or something, you know, just to get those lines from the house. So right now is an extra special part of the year where we powder down to sea level and we're go. How long have you lived in Alaska? Did you grow up there? Did you just sort of make your way up later in life? I made my way up here as I 
got out of uh, competitive ski racing in Idaho. Another minor injury to the knee left me to where I wasn't going to be able to maintain my strength. At least it wasn't terrible. I wouldn't need surgery, but I was like, I'm going to be weak for another year or two. And I gave up on competitive racing and, and resorts and came up here and in uh, 1998. And there's uh, I think it was like 2000, 2004, I didn't ski a resort and realized I really do need to ski a resort sometimes. Even, even on those years with no resort, I was, I was, I'd give you all my skis like 250 days a year. Oh, wow. So yeah. So skiing just about every day, um, you know, that's possible. Yeah. There, there was a four year stretch there where I was, it was my ideal world. I was sleeping in the snow probably a hundred days a year and uh, somewhere around there. And, you know, you go on a two month uh, expedition trip and those days start logging up pretty fast, but it was just a way of life. Sure. And you grew up racing and, and then, you know, you said that that kind of ended for you. And when you, when you moved up to Alaska, were you, were you working up in Alaska or did you just come up just to explore and ski to start? I piggybacked with a couple friends out of Jackson. Uh, one of my friend's fathers had some land out on Kodiak Island. And we came up in the summer for a big demo job on his land. And we finished that project. And I went inland towards Girdwood. My friends did as well. There was four of us total. And they were plotting their exit. You know, I'm leaving in two weeks. I'm going to catch a plane in October. And myself, I'm, I was like, I'm shipping my skis up. <laughs> I knew I knew I was staying. I was like, you know, I was 20, 21 years old. I was darn sure staying in the winter. And that was in Girdwood and living in uh, tents and tree houses. And, you know, we, we were living in a tent that whole summer. I had a, wow. a lot of canvas. <laughs> really soggy. Sure. And when did the things sort of transition into to becoming a guide? Was that something that you had aspired towards or, or sort of trained for? Or did it just sort of happen? being in the right place at the right time. I certainly, that was one of the objectives and that was part of the plan. I'd already started my avalanche training through the Canadian Avalanche Association. And, and I guess I could say a fair amount of mountain savvy. My father used to take me into the mountains for weeks at a time with mules and packing deep into the mountains. So I, I, I it all came to me fairly easily, if you will, but no, no shortage of challenges. Sure. That first winter, I was able to get a job in Valdez uh, halfway through the winter, helping out with some snowcats. And, um, and I spent the next four winters doing that, running four piston bullies in their snowcat skiing operation. But that was just for cloudy days when the helicopters went run. And so if it was a sunny day, I got to go fly. And the first year... Maybe I only got like 10, 15 days of hilly time. And the second year I got 30. And the th <laughs> third year I probably got 30 to 40. And in the fourth year I got another 30 days. And, and I'd been doing a lot of uh, other glacier guiding in the summertime. And I got into the hunting thing a little bit, but exited pretty fast on that. Realized that leaving tracks behind was fine. Or little ice pricks and up a mountain was fine, but you know, taking blood was out of my, out of my guiding realm. But, um, so that was the biggest intro there with Valdez Hilly Camps. I, I got to follow a dozen different guides or more, and I got a hundred days and I just got to watch how they mm -hmm. did things. And I think that's my biggest asset at this juncture. 
Yeah. I mean, cause you're working on what is the maybe 20 ish years at, at this point, probably of, of, you know, some sort of guiding and, and being in the mountains pretty much full time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think over that time, you know, just being in the mountains so much, uh, you know, you start to really pick up on the snow conditions and, and the weather, right? Yeah. And it is just so incredibly diverse. There's this Valley's good. That Valley's not, it's, we don't have the persistent weak slab layers that the intermountain snowpacks like Idaho, Colorado have where everything's shitty or everything's good or, you know, winds came from the West. Here the mountains and the valleys are so tall and deep that it can, it can take a North wind and almost whip at 180 degrees. And now you got cross loading of snow on slopes so that, that are out of this. It was a north wind. Why do it? Why is it loaded on the east or something? So every every valley is is different. I tell you, one of the I studied meteorology a bit in college, and one of the most magical things in learning about the mountains and whatnot is being able to get in that helicopter and go touch the snow in in twenty different places. Um, in a 20 mile radius in the same day and realized that this valley got six inches and this mountain got 18 and this mountain over here got two feet of new snow and this mountain over here got no snow. And then, and then at the end of the day, look, you know, kind of bring it all together and how, and then replay the satellite images of how that storm came through and what the ocean surface temperatures were and what the relative humidity was and where the wind was. And then, and then realize that the way the wind brought this storm in, it filled this valley. And that's why it snowed 18 inches in that valley. Just the way the, and then, and then try to, it's such, the weather is such chaos where it's the abnormalities and the, Anyway, I'm trying to find those trends and it's a lot of fun. Yeah. And I would imagine as a heli uh, ski guide, uh, you know, it's in being in Alaska, I know, you know, from, from sort of doing some research and whatnot, part of the, the whole heli skiing is, is having enough time coming up as a guest because not every day is going to be perfect for flying, right? Yeah. We fly about it, it, coming up for a week long trip. Three days of flying is about what people get. At the end, if a person gets five days, that is absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And, and a lot of that has to do with what you were talking about, the weather specifically, and, and just making sure it's safe out there for everybody. Yeah. Primarily weather. We have such a broad level of terrain around here where if the weather allows us to fly, we can go find good skiing. And I stretch that radius out to about 40 miles. Oh, wow. Okay. Comes down to it. Sure. And, and when does the, you know, sort of typical Alaska heli season start? I mean, it's, it's not really right now, is it? It's really more of a, a later in the season sort of thing. Yeah. The rush cut starts coming in uh, March and April. We've flown from mid-February, early mid-February into mid-May, but the focus season is March and April. Um, by the end of March, we, we're looking at almost 18 hours of daylight. And once April rolls around, it, um, it changes drastically. In 18 hours of daylight, I mean, you could, so you can be out, do you typically try to fly in the mornings or is it really just when the, the weather permits? I mean, could you go out at four in the afternoon and, and put in a, a full session until, you know, seven or eight or something like that? 
Oh, that d- really depends on the guests. You know, if you got one group, one helicopter, you can do whatever you want. We like to be home with a grace period of an hour before sunset. And I also like to keep my afternoons and into the evening real mellow. Get a lot of film crews that want to grab that evening light. And, and I, I really push that, push those guys on the morning. Is it like sort of any place else? It, it, I mean, the, the, as the day goes on and things warm sometimes just a little bit, uh, obviously the conditions, you know, change throughout the day. Yeah, most definitely. Start to get a lot of afternoon warming there in April. And those, uh, all, all, all that snow is going to come down. Those big cornices start sagging. And- sure. And, and I think for a lot of people, you know, you see the, the movies and you see the big lines and usually it's sort of at the end of every movie, they've got the big Alaska scenes and things like that for, for sort of the average Joe that comes up or, or the, the, I would imagine most of the guests that, uh, that you take out are not, you know, pro skiers and things of that nature. Is it differ as far as like the terrain that you put people on to ski or is it really sort of a matter of, of the, the level of the skiers that you have with you for that day? I thoroughly enjoy evaluating people's abilities, gaining their confidence, increasing their confidence, and taking them to things that they never fathomed possible within their ballpark. And sometimes I need to talk people through all that. Now, with all that said, it is incredibly intimidating up here. And yeah, the anticipation's free. (laughs) (laughs) But the, the movies and whatnot have just done such the industry such a disservice because everybody likes getting their hair raised a little bit. But what people enjoy is beautiful, fluid, streamlined runs where they're not worried and threatened. And and at I I spent quite a bit of time the first half of my guiding career wanting to be guiding the rock stars that maybe could go where I wanted to go within reason. And then about somewhere in my mid thirties, I was like, actually, I just want to take gentlemen and beautiful women skiing and, and really brought myself back. And, and it's different when I'd say with my guide progression, I came with a good balance on skis from racing fists and norams and, and I didn't have to worry about my feet. You know, I had the feel, I really didn't have to watch where I was going. I could really reference ski and a lot of this big mountain skiing is looking over your shoulder, you know, at what's coming behind you and a lot of tactical stuff and worrying about what your feet are doing are the last thing. These, um, the the pro level stuff is like out just blowing it out to where there is i've taken 14 year old kids and 76 year old gents out skiing i really enjoy the the multi uh generational thing that's huge uh rewards there and and we the risk is always a little lower and people are just having a great time i've i've really tried hard to appease people and get them into bigger terrain. And what I found is people really just like enjoyable, fluid days. Yeah. Cause I mean, most people are coming from a resort background or maybe some backcountry skiing. 
uh, background, but uh, I would imagine in Alaska, if you put them in the right spot, I mean, you can get them on some really long sustained runs that you just, you know, can't find in, in most resorts or even, you know, I guess lower 48 here, backcountry skiing sort of places, right? Yeah. Every day I try to thread in a run that's about, every day I'm out guiding, I try to at least have one run somewhere when people are starting to get tired that just cruises for about five miles. Wow. That's a long time. I mean, you think most resorts you're skiing for, I don't know, a minute, three minutes, five minutes at a time, and then you stop or you're already at the bottom, you know, if you're skiing somewhat fast or, you know, unless it's a gigantic bowl sort of area, but you could do full laps with the chair sometimes in 10 minutes uh, in most places. So yeah, those long runs are, are pretty special, I would think, for most people. It is. I really enjoy it. Yeah. And, and t- talk to me a little bit about this new endeavor that, uh, that you're firing up here for this upcoming season uh, with Alaska Backcountry Guides. Uh, this is a, a new operation out of Valdez, right? Yes. Yep. We're uh, Joy Wolf and Justin Bafu and myself and a collection of other fine guides and staff are starting up a, I want to say it's kind of a semi-private opportunity to hilly ski we're keeping the groups to two groups per ship and if we have more groups and we book out a second ship we've got um eight weeks booked with one ship and the second ship coming in for four weeks this winter operating out of valdez uh with the current situation we're we're, uh, got private houses and chefs for people airbnbs and whatnot that we just rented out for the whole winter so groups can like go stay in their group. And, yeah. So you're running it a little bit different. I mean, you've worked for obviously some different helicopter, you know, skiing operations over the years. This, what makes this one kind of different? Is it the small group aspect? It is. I, with a lot of operators try to run upwards of four groups to a helicopter and it you can't play with those weather windows. If you need to go to a new area, you got to, it takes twice as long. So oftentimes we'll fly in 15, 20 minutes. And so now you're up against like a 45 minute round trip with a helicopter, including loading, unloading, blah, 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 you know, half an hour to 40 minutes. So if I got four groups, it takes me two hours to deploy and two hours to come back. And, and I, I oftentimes and my hands are tied and out there to where I really, like I need to bounce five miles over there, but I'm looking at three groups behind me and it's like, mm-hmm. actually maybe the best thing to do is go to the road, you know, or be closer to the road. We can, with two groups, we can really attack mm-hmm. if you will. And, and the helicopter stays with you for the duration yeah. uh, with, with that. I, I, the tactical approach in the mountains with me and that helicopter's right there. Like if I'm, I, I'm skiing alone. Mm-hmm. Still working on names. Yeah. I'm, I'm alone in these mountains with four people I don't know behind me. Oftentimes there are solid companions and, and turn into my very good friends. Um, in the beginning, cut and dry, I do not know these people. I can't bank on these people. And I also need to try and get this slope to slide in front of me yeah. so it doesn't slide on them. I need to go evaluate it in its worst spot and then try and kick the slope off if I do see an instability. And, um, and so that helicopter's in the valley 
if that thing's going for fuel and it's going to be at 45 minutes to an hour, I might, we might not ski until that helicopter returns. Sure. It and another guide are my, my backup. Um, that's kind of the tactical approach on the heli angle. And so by having, by having that helicopter sort of with you the whole time, you don't have to necessarily wait as long maybe to start skiing and, you know, you could ski one spot and if it isn't that great, you could pick up and move to another spot pretty much right away. Definitely. Having two groups, one helicopter, there will not be a logistical hiccup. And, that, and I can go out and get a full day of skiing and the heli really never has to go for fuel. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and you guys are based out of Valdez. I mean, are you kind of the only show in town that's based right out of Valdez at the, you know, coming up for this season? Or is there some other ones that, that run out of Valdez? are for the most part there um a lot of the the focused traffic is on thompson pass and out of town we have a local hilly contractor that just moved into the area that i've worked with some 10 15 years ago that a local outfit out of girdwood alpine air that they've got a hangar will be the first operation in a long time to have a hangar and a enclosed storefront and enclosed space right out at the airport for everybody to drive their gear and just leave their gear there. I'm excited. Yeah. It sounds like it's going to be great. And, and, uh, and kicking off here. I mean, we were just chatting right before we started. It seems like March is a long ways off to really get things going for the season, but we're already into February now and, uh, shoot, March is going to be here before you know it. We're, you know, what, uh, less than 30 days away from the beginning of uh, March. Yeah. I'll, I'll start, uh, I'll be flying here in two weeks. If I get another good window, weather window, I'll go recon with out of an airplane, but we'll be uh, looking at bringing in a heli right around Valentine's Day and then start, start plugging around two, two weeks of skiing. Yeah. And Dan, Dan, talk to me a little bit about the, the sort of the research and the prep that goes into to getting everybody, you know, ready to go. Not necessarily when the guests are, you know, standing right there in front of the helicopter, but how much uh, recon are, are you doing on a daily or weekly basis before you, you put the guests in the helicopter and, and actually take them up skiing? There is, um, you know, back to the spatial variation of things. I, uh, I condone a thorough flight sea of well beyond my terrain of what we're skiing. And it changes so drastically day to day. I can look at the weather trends over a computer um, and, and look at the season behind me. I can look at other people's information. I always wondered how other guides could just come up to the state and just jump in with both feet. And when I lived up here and back living up here and I could drive a, you know, three meter probe through the snowpack and I'm like, Oh, there's, there's February, there's January. Oh, there's that early December rain event or, you know, I can, I, the snowpack is in my memory. And then as I started working out of Haines and I wasn't there, or I was living down in Idaho and coming back up, I would go fly around in a fixed swing forever and keep going and back burn hours and hours in a fixed swing, looking at the entire range and, and the, and the activity of what's going on and, with topos in my lap and drawing arrows and maps and circles on the maps. So my biggest thing is just huge fly arounds. I can't, I can't just go to the first Ridge and say it's good. Uh, that, so that's, that's my biggest recon 
tool is getting in the air and getting around. And, and so, so when you're saying that you're, you're getting up into a fixed wing airplane, you know, maybe before the helicopters, you know, showing up for the season or whatnot and, and just setting down in various locations and getting out and just really feeling the snow. I'll cover the ground in the airplane. And then, so say like we get a huge week long storm and then it's starting to break in an afternoon, but we know we're not going to be able to mob into the field. We don't know the stability and all that. I'll get in a fixed wing and go fly the entire range and then draw on my map, the circles and X's and flow of wind and way, the way things, the snow moved out there. And then that next day when I get in the helicopter, I know exactly where I want to go. And we beeline to that location at 120 knots. And then for the most part, that's when my snow touching begins. The The fixed wing approach takes, I, I love it. And it is about my favorite access, but when you, when you land off field in the snow in a fixed wing, it's, it's, there's some dice rolling going on. <laughs> yeah. It's not a, uh, you know, cement runway that you're landed on. I mean, you're, you, do they put some skids on the front of the plane and you just. Yep, we got, we got skis on the front, skis on the tail. Oh, and, wow. Uh, and, but you still need to go, you're making a runway and you don't know what it is. You can assume, but that'll get a guy in trouble. Yeah. So basically you got to go do like two or three touch and goes. Mm-hmm. And just and make sure it's stable enough. And it, rub it, rub it, rub it. And make <laughs> sure there's not some weird crust. I've, I've been out there in a fixed wing where we've landed, came to a stop and the thing sunk. Oh, wow. Like two or three feet deep. And we had to spend hours getting it turned around and getting the pilot off and yeah. And were you able to get back out? I mean, eventually get it back up in the air. Oh yeah. Yeah. But a lot of digging, I would think, huh? Yeah. And packing. Now we had to build a runway by hand, (laughs) packing it out with our skis. Sure. I mean, that's uh, that's part of the adventure, I guess, of living and skiing in Alaska. And I mean, what keeps bringing you back? I know, you know, you came came when you were in your 20s and, and spent a good amount of time left sort of for a while. And, and now you're back uh, pretty much full time living in Alaska and skiing out of Alaska. Yep. Yep. It uh, longer winters brought me here and longer winters are bringing me back. And what keeps bringing me back is my first winter here. And it sounds somewhat miserable, but my first winter here and somewhere is about January, February, we ran into three weeks at 20 below zero. And at one point it warmed up to like negative 10 and snowed a foot. <laughs> Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit temperatures here. But um, there was that, uh, bear in mind, uh, we were on like leather boots three pin cable bindings. It was the only backcountry gear really that could hold you in, in the late nineties. And we ran into the best skiing in the, in the world, hands down. I mean, like the first week was fun. And then the second week you realized that everything was good. And the line that you really wanted to ski that you didn't ski last week was right there and it's still good. And you're, and, and then by the third week of that, the snow was so locked up. And the skiing was phenomenal. There wasn't a breath of wind. I've been, I've been waiting for that cycle to reoccur for, I must say, pushing like 25 years now. And here we are into this winter. And this is one of the best winters off the get-go that we've had in 
uh, skiing quality, uh, blue available holes, plenty of storms, not huge wind events. And this this season right here is it's about all time. It's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, trying to catch up with you. And you were you were really judging like, okay, when is there a, a slight window where where I've got a few hours or an hour to to chat and and it's not going to interrupt the skiing too much overall. I know you're going to go ski it here after we're done talking today because it is it is sort of a sunny, nice day to get out, huh? We're in a blue hole. We will be we'll be getting the storms and the lower 48 will be in the sun and then the jet stream will switch and and it'll go blue up here and lower 48 will get the storms. Sure. And bringing it back to the to the heli ski guiding and and working as a guide, I mean you touched on it, I, th- I think, a little bit earlier as far as just taking out all ages and, and ability levels and things. But I mean, what's really sort of the, the best part of the job and, and the, the part that makes it fun, you know, each day and, and keeps you coming back year after year to, to get out and, and keep uh, guiding? Being that conduit for satisfaction or, or my friend and friends and my guests satisfaction, you know. So that, that's what makes it sort of to see those people experience uh, some of the stuff that you've been doing for 20 years or so up in Alaska for the very first time. Is that, is that just still bring a smile to your face when you, when you see them come down after you, like you said, maybe a five mile, you know, cruiser run or, or some of the steeper stuff you get them on that they didn't think they could ski. Yeah, it, it is fascinating. You know, the skiing itself, nobody just falls into it. There's a lot of falling. <laughs> But nobody just falls into it and they're like, I'm going to ski. Like, I decided this week I'm going to start skiing. And so taking somebody that, you know, oftentimes it's shared with family or friends growing up and and the costs associated with what we're doing, it's typically, you know, the 40 plus year old gents that, you know, they, they skied a bunch and growing up in college. And then it became like a, they got involved with their career and then it became a once a season kind of thing. And then they started getting back into it a little bit. And then they decide they want to go hilly skiing or something. And people show up and they're just like, Oh my God, you have revived my love for skiing. And there's something new out there that is um, smooth and untouched. And just for these people to, tell me that those are best day skiing in their life. And, and I'm looking at them grinning ear to ear. I know they're wholeheartedly saying that. And I'm looking at them. I'm like, we're going to do it again tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah. That's gotta be pretty special. I mean, because especially for someone like yourself or, or some of the other skiers that, like you said, have been skiing for 30, 40 years, maybe longer. And have put in, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days to say that, you know, that's the best day they've ever had is, is pretty special, I would think. Yeah. And it, it really is neat. And, and for myself, um, you know, my guide progression, I wanted to be working with the rock stars and I wanted to be working with the gents and ladies and, you know, tighten up the risk versus reward. Um, and now it's just, making smiles. I, I don't, I don't care what I'm doing necessarily. I'm not, I'm not a plastic guide, if you will. I'm not out there just going through the motions, but I'm just wholeheartedly there for the people and the rest of the group. It's not just my group. It's two, three other groups and two other helicopters behind me. 
that were trying to move through the mountains as far as my logistical mind works. But I, I sideslip all day long. I'll, I'll traverse all day long. I'll be checking out the snow over here and over there. Like I, I am just, I'm not there to turn. And, and then I've, and then I will get my beautiful windows and open it up. And I'm like, that's why I'm here. But for the most part, like it, my head is turned off from the actual skiing. So like, I'm just chasing the snow everywhere. You get so much good skiing in on your time. I would think when you, when you kind of flip the switch and become guide mode, then it's all about the guests at that point, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. And uh, Dan, if, if somebody wanted to get a hold of you or, you know, wanted to, to hook up with, uh, with Alaska backcountry guides, uh, you know, here for the inaugural season, or, or maybe they can't make it happen this year, but want to get it, you know, on the radar, even for the next year coming up, which, which happens really quick. Uh, you know, the days keep, keep ticking by. And, and I would imagine you guys book up, you know, sometimes maybe even a year in advance or longer. How would somebody get a hold of you guys? Our website is alaskabackcountryguides.com. You can find us there. We also have a Facebook presence. And as the season continues on, we will expand that presence. We're just up and getting going. We're off to a solid start with uh, piecing together all the logistics. And we got a slug of guests wanting to come ride with us this season. Look forward to riding with anybody and everybody that wants to come see us. Awesome. Well, hey, Dan, thanks for taking a little bit of time. Uh, enjoy your day out uh, in the mountains uh, later on, and, and we'll catch up with you here, hopefully again, uh, maybe towards the end of the season, see how, how the first season with Alaska Backcountry Guides went for you. Awesome. And I tell you what, you and some of your friends, come on up and enjoy the, our great big state up here. You pull out of Portland, pick, grab Buck Cobb on Seattle there, and jump on a jet, I'll pick you up. That sounds like a plan. Hey, thanks, Dan. Right on. Cheers. Thank you, Lenny. There you go. Dan Vandermeulen, lead guide for Alaska Backcountry Guides. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Dan on the Talking Skiing Podcast. Once again, I'm Lenny Joseph, and thanks again for listening. Make sure you hit the subscribe button so you can get the latest episodes as soon as they are released. And please leave a review so others can find the Talking Skiing Podcast. You can find the Talking Skiing Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook at Talking Skiing. Once again, I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Talking Skiing Podcast, and I hope you're able to get out and do some skiing. We'll talk with you again soon.